This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and FPC Gulfport on YouTube. You know, there's an old saying that I trust you're familiar with. The saying goes something like this. If you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. If you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans for the future. Now, some of us can relate to that. Some of us can relate to making plans for the future only to discover that that's not what God has in mind. Back in high school, you know in high schools, they had guidance counselors, I assume they still do. Well, we had a guidance counselor who I think had been on the job since, you know, 1920, had just lost all the passion for life and all the enthusiasm for the work that she was doing. So you'd go into the guidance counselor's office and you think you're going to get some wonderful discernment as to what your gifts and talents were and how this might apply to the time yet to come. Well, that's not what we got. I remember filing into this room and hearing something very different. Seated in the chair, it was kind of this musty old chair that looked as old as the school itself. And she just looked at me and she says, you know what? You can be anything that you want to be. Now, I thought that was a bit of a, a cop-out because I was looking for something more. See, in high school, I did what I assume many of us did. I looked at my gifts and talents in certain areas, and I think I exaggerated some of the gifts and talents that I had. Back at this time, I had this ridiculous idea that if I just practiced hard enough, I could play in the NBA. I could play basketball. You're already laughing, so I can see... uh, If you're laughing, then certainly God was laughing too, but I had that thought. Now, I was also, believe it or not, I was really into computers. Back in the Atari days and the Commodore 64 days and the first Macintoshes and like, I was really into computers and I thought maybe I'd be a computer programmer. Then I saw Top Gun and I saw the right stuff and I thought I'd fly planes or I thought I might go into the stars, things like that. At various intervals, I had all these different career paths in mind. But here's what I learned the hard way. There's no amount of planning that I could make. There's no amount of dreams that I could have that could be a substitute for talent. That could be a substitute for size. I was never, never appointed to be a star center in the NBA. There's things about me that were inherently limiting and still are that limit what I can do or what I might be what the future might hold. And so for my guidance counter to look at me and say, you can be anything you want to be, hooey, that is absolutely not the case. Young people, I tell you, it sounds good on the ears. If anyone tells you that, it sounds good. It's just not true. There are limitations, and some of them are found in your own flesh and skill sets, and you have to learn to operate within the parameters that God has forged before you were even born. That's a little bit of free advice for our youth here this morning. Now, the point being this, If God laughs when we tell him our plans, then many of us, myself included, have been a frequent source for his amusement. Most often, here's what we do, and this has been a mistake that I've made not just in high school, but even over the years thereafter, even into ministry. One of the mistakes that we can make when it comes to planning is not just to overemphasize our giftedness and abilities, But sometimes we can plan in such a way as that we look to the future and we presume that if I take certain steps that I can reach a designated outcome without any doubt or hesitation. And so what we do is we set our trajectory in motion. We start to do the things that we feel are good and right and appropriate. And then, and only then, we turn to God and we ask God to validate the choices that we already made. If you and I are being honest, this is one of the number one stumbling blocks in our own prayer life. 
So often we pray that God would validate the choices that we've already made rather than to lead us and prompt us to follow him. There's a world of difference between the two. And you get that wrong, you can spend much of a lifetime just banging against the rocks in the stream of his will. We make plans for the future and then just expect that he'll bless the plans that we've made. And we seldom want him to lead us. Well, in today's text, God is going to challenge that mindset. In today's text, he's going to say, no, stop it, no more, don't do it. You continue to take steps and then look to me to clean up after you, knock it off. You and I are not going through the jungle of life, just clearing the vines and looking over our shoulder to make sure God's still there. God tells us that he is to lead us and we are to follow him, and that's what we see in today's text. All right, if you would, let's return to our text. Verse 13, I'll read uh, verse 13 and maybe the first part of verse 14, and we'll stop and look at what this means. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You know, speaking of going to such and such a city, it was just a little under four years ago. I flew to Cairo in order to teach a class in Alexandria. Now, if you've ever been to the Middle East, there's a few Arabic phrases that even you as an English-speaking person are bound to encounter. One of the phrases I heard repeated multiple times just by the cab driver who picked me up leaving the airport. I'd gotten into the cab, and I asked a question. I said, what time do you think we'll arrive? You know, it's been a long flight, multiple planes. I finally got into town. I'm jet-lagged. I want to know when we're going to get where we're going. And he looks over his shoulder, and with an accent I'm not going to try to replicate, he says, well, we'll get there at 7 o'clock, inshallah, inshallah. Now, I heard that. I was like, oh, all right, interesting. You know, I just nodded like I knew what that meant. He assumes I'm more of a world traveler than I really am. So a little bit later, I'm asking questions, and I want to know about the weather. What's the weather supposed to be like tomorrow? I told him, I think my phone app said it might be sunny. He says, oh, yes, it's sunny. Inshallah. Now, once again, I nod my head, but I'm beginning to think, all right, I really need to get to the bottom of what this term means, because this is actually about the third or fourth time that I heard it. So I asked him. I said, uh, pardon me, good sir. What does that word mean? And he had just kind of this knowing, this knowing look. And he said, inshallah, if God wills. If God wills, such and such will happen. Now in the Middle East, you can hear this all over the place. I heard it in Israel, heard it in Egypt. The phrase, inshallah, if God wills, it's appended to almost any statement in which you have conjecture about the future. It's said without even thinking about it. Inshallah. Now, other cultures uh, have similar phraseology. In the Latin, there was a phrase called Deo Valente, which means God willing. Some of you have heard the old Doris Day song, Que sera, sera. I thought that was Spanish or French or something. It's actually from an Italian phrase, Che sera, sera. And what it means is whatever will be, will be. Now, that's not necessarily pointing to a divine hand. But like these other phrases, all these phrases imply that the future is out of your hand to control. That there's some force, some entity, some God, some plan that dictates things, and your plans are contingent on what has been dictated. Well, in today's text in verse 13, we see an example 
of someone who's trying to do the exact opposite. Someone here who is trying to dictate the future on the basis of their own desire, as if they have the capacity and authority to bring their desire into fruition. So verse 13 describes a man who's making his plans, not just for a week, but for the whole next year. Now what do the plans involve? Well, look again at the text. In verse 13, this individual is confidently, confidently describing their intention to A, to travel somewhere, probably remote, B, to spend a year there, and C, to have success. Come out with a profit is the word. So today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year there, we'll buy and sell, and we'll make a profit. This plan involves travel and duration and success. Now is any of that really so bad? Some of us, we're sitting there and going, wait a second, that sounds a lot like what I do all the time. I make these sort of plans for me or for my business or for my family or for school or for the church or what have you. So we hear that and we go, that can't be bad, can it, to make plans here? The answer is no, planning is not bad. Planning is good. Here's the distinction. Planning is good. Presumption is bad. Presumption is bad. You see, anytime we make plans, we kind of bake into the cake all sorts of contingencies that just have to go the way that we've determined that they should go. Any plan you could make for the future to travel, go somewhere, live there for a year and profit has all sorts of contingencies. If you tried to make a plan like that, say, I don't know, in January 2020, do you think that that plan would have turned out as you'd planned it? Well, probably not. Why? Because as small a thing that you can't even see with your own eyeballs called a virus could not only mess you up, but mess up the entire world around you. If a virus that you can't even see can upend your world, your life, for years at a time, then just how much control do you really have and just how presumptuous are you being? It is not wise and it's not appropriate to plan for the future as if you can, through sheer force of will, bring about all the outcomes that you desire when you don't have that sort of control. And what scripture identifies this as in today's text is that's arrogance. It's arrogance. Again, not bad to be a planner. So make that distinction. It's all right to break out the day planner. Some of you remember that Stephen Covey book, like the seven habits of the highly wonderful people or something like that. Highly effective, awesome. You, I know some of you got this. The seven habits of highly effective people. Well, in this seven habits, among them are planning and structure and the like. And I remember back at the time, you know, everyone had the day planners and so forth. Again, none of that's bad. In fact, planning is even commended in Scripture. In Luke 14, there's a discussion about this guy who he wants to build a tower. And that's not going to be done overnight, so he has to have a plan in which to do so. And Scripture says that anyone who wants to build a tower, he has to plan, but he has to count the cost, figure out if he has the means for which to achieve the effort before he even starts it. Planning is good. The Apostle Paul, we see several intervals where he had plans. Jesus had plans. Planning is not bad. But for many of us, we don't really have a plan that incorporates God. Our plan is horizontal, based on horizontal outcomes and horizontal contingencies, not necessarily based on a vertical look to a vertical God who has the ability to turn our life on a dime. We can be unduly presumptuous and arrogant. In verse 13, that's the mistake that's being made. The attitude of the heart in planning, not necessarily the fact that he plans. 
All right, let's look at this a little further now. As we look at the second part of verse 14. Verse 14, part B, says this. What's your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? So what is your life? So this is a way of turning on ear the presumptions and plans of man. A man says, I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to spend a year there. We're going to have a great time. We're going to profit, have success. And the author here, James, says, hey, hold the phone here. What is your life? Before you start getting ahead of yourself, thinking for the next year, just remember this much. Your life is like a vapor. A wind comes and can blow it away, extinguish it. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We sometimes are not introspective about the nature of our own mortality and how that can limit our ability to do things. Sometimes we're not introspective about our own health and our ability to achieve certain things. Now, with regards to mortality, there was something that happened in our house this past week that was instructive to me in thinking this particular verse through. We were in the kitchen, I don't know, it was Wednesday or Thursday or something like that, cleaning and such, and there's dishes being cleaned there in the sink. And from out of the sink came this one singular bubble. Just one, just one singular bubble. The rest of them adhered to the sink and to the dishes and like, well, one bubble broke free, broke free from the sink and started to go up in the air. Ann and I are talking and we kind of see this thing and we don't pay any attention for a moment because usually if something pops out of the sink, a moment later it's gone. But as we're talking, it's like hanging just in the air. You can't help but look at this thing that sits there. And as we look at this singular bubble, it starts to move. It starts to move, and it's going up, and it's going around the kitchen. Well, those of you who have been in our house know that our kitchen opens right up into the family room. So this little bubble just starts moving the party out into the family room. And by then, you know, the kids are watching. We're all checking out. This bubble is floating around, doing its own thing. And it seemed outright indestructible because the longer we watched, it didn't seem to lose any strength. It just kept moving and moving, plodding its way through the cosmos of our kitchen. Now, if ever there was a soap bubble that seemed like it was in control of its destiny, it was this one. But then, then calamity struck. It started to go up to the ceiling, and we were sure it would hit the ceiling and then pop. And then, I don't know what happened, but some air current knocked it down, and it started to go down and down and down, and then it spiraled, and then gone. Gone right there near the floor. Now all that lasted, I don't know, maybe a minute and a half or so. And for the bubble, and even for us, it felt like time stood still while we watched this silly little thing happen. But in the scales of eternity, this was just the smallest window of time imaginable between this thing took flight and the moment that it popped. In verse 14, we're seeing really the same thing. Only in this case, James is pointing to a vapor, to cloud, to just a wisp of air or water that you see for a moment, and then a breeze comes and it is gone. Whether you're talking about vapors or bubbles or what have you, these are things that are fragile. They're not built to last. I am looking at the flesh and blood equivalent of hundreds of bubbles finding our way through the world around us, and yet who have a very uh, short timeline by which we can travel. If that's a shock to you, I hope that it isn't. I hope that it isn't because Scripture repeatedly says things like we're a vapor. And that's not meant to demean us. It isn't. We could be demeaned and say, what? I didn't come in here to be told I'm the equivalent of a soap bubble. All right, I get that. But Scripture here says that we're the equivalent of a vapor, something that's just here today and gone just momentarily. 
And we don't think about mortality often enough to really have that resonate. Let's do a test. I want you to take your age. Now, whatever your age is, I want to double it. Now, at whatever that second number is, do you think that you will live to see it? I suspect there's many in this room, myself included, who would be fortunate, if impossible, to find that we were to achieve that. And the reason why is because our time frame is quite narrow. It is narrow. Even as we think that we have all the time in the world, Scripture repeatedly tells us that our time frame is short. Psalm 90, the psalmist put it this way. He said, the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. So here we see the life expectancy on the far end for people in the psalmist day. And he was saying, look, you make 70, so you've done all right. If by reason of strength, if you have some incredible fortitude, you've been eating your Old Testament Wheaties or what have you, if by then you should happen to make it to 80, oh, wow, that's something else. And yet, Psalm 90 says, to boast in this is only labor and sorrow. These days are soon cut off, and we fly away. So teach us, O God, to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This text, like verse 14 of today's reading in James, reminds us that our plans need to reflect our mortality. Our plans for the future need to reflect a reasonable expectation of how long that future is. Let's look at verses 15 and 16, where we see a wiser, safer way to plan for the future, no matter how many days are given to us. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, So he has just talked about the things you don't do. You don't plan in the future as if God isn't part of it. You don't plan in the future as if it's just this open book and you can presume that whatever you plan will happen. Rather, in verse 15, it says, Instead, instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. If the Lord wants, if the Lord desires, if it's his plan, then we will go to another city and we'll live there for a year and we'll prophets. Verse 16, but now, doing it the old way, now you're just boasting in your arrogance, and that boasting is evil. All right, let me ask you another question. If God has ordained or willed, decreed an event to come to pass, do you think it'll happen? I should hear less murmuring and more yeses. If God wills something, it's part of the job description, right? God means God, then God wants something, it happens. God snaps a finger and it occurs. God speaks a word and it happens. That's just part of being God. If he can't do that, then he's not God. So part of being God is that you can will events to occur. You can bring about outcomes that you desire. Now, how about you and I? Can we do that? Well, no, of course not. We said in one of our Wednesday night studies recently that one of the ground floor, most foundational theological statements you can ever make in order to really set yourself up to succeed as a theologian. Start with this premise and you'll be on a good floor. The premise is this. There is a God and you are not him. Now that sounds to us to be intuitive, right? We're in church. There is a God and you're not him. But how often the people in the world around us, how often do even you and I act as if we're the ones in charge? As if there is a God And he's a satellite in orbit of us, and he exists in order to bless the things that we want to do and that we want to be. You see, that's more the default mindset. You won't find that in any catechism, but I can guarantee you, 
You talk to people long enough, you'll find that that's the default. There is a God, and he exists to make me happy. There is a God. He exists to make me prosperous. There is a God. He exists to come alongside and validate me in the decisions that I have made for my life. That's the way we tend to approach God, as if he's like this janitor. We plot the course. We're the general. We're in charge. We're in the pilot seat. He comes along from behind and blesses the decisions that we've made or cleans up if we've messed something up. That outlook does not put him in his proper place, which is out front. Your job is not to lead God. His job is to lead you. How does he do so? Start here. He leads us through this book. Now, this book doesn't necessarily tell you to marry Sally or Bill or Ted or Susie or what have you, but it will give you principles on marriage. It won't necessarily tell you to go to work for Epson or Hewlett Packard or what have you, but it will give you principles on vocations. This book is a light unto our feet, and the principles for good living are within. With that said, how often is our approach to this book, you know, we'll be making our own decisions about the things we want to do and the plan for the future, and then, then maybe we'll hit some rough patch where we'll be like, oh man, this week didn't go so well. Boy, things are really kind of rough. Whew, God, are you, are you there? I know, I'll flag you down. I'll open my Bible somewhere to the middle, and I'll stick my finger in, and whatever verse it lands on, that must be the verse you have for me, right? I'm seeing some heads nodding because some of you know what I'm talking about. That can be a mindset that we fall into where God is like this remedial guy who comes along at the season we need him, that we finally look up, we finally take his hand. That's not the role that he wants for our life. And that's what we're seeing in these verses. He's not saying, I'm the janitor or the cleanup crew. He says, I'm the pilot. I'm in charge here. That's why they call me God. I'm the one who runs the ship. I will lead you. Are you open to being led? And again, for a lot of us, really the answer is no. But in verses 15 and 16, it says, look, flip that upside down. If you think you've been the pilot of your own script, then flip the script. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say this. If it's God's will that I should have this outcome, if the Lord wills it, then we shall live and do this or that. But, verse 16, largely we now boast in our arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Why is it evil? Why does it go on, verse 16, to say that's evil? Because it strips God of his glory. It makes the pilot the co-pilot. That's not good. Is that something you and I are doing in our own planning for the future? Are we making God the co-pilot? And they're thinking, like, that's some gig he wants? What Scripture says in verse 16 is that's not just stupid, that's evil. Again, it steals from his glory. It takes the creator and makes him kind of the buddy of the created, or worse yet, the lackey of the created. This is not what we're called to do. It's not what we're called to be. There is a God, and we are not him. You know, my high school guidance counselor, as I said earlier, she was, in effect, telling me that I was in charge. I was the pilot. I commanded my own fate. Whatever you want to be, you can be. And that sounds so generous and kind, doesn't it? Whatever you want to do, you can do. You know, little 14-year-old me is all affirmed. Oh, goody, I can go do it. I wish she'd just been honest. Like James is being honest. And James says that it's just not the way it works. You can't necessarily plan things horizontally and assume that you can achieve the outcome that you've planned. Rather, you need to look vertical. So, 
Returning again to our text here, in these verses, verses 13 really through 16, there's an ongoing reminder that God is the one that is in charge rather than ourselves. And if today, if this week, this month, this year, we're defaulting to the view that says that really I'm in charge, again, this is silly, this is naive, this is arrogant. It's the equivalent of taking the philosophical worldview of humanism and just putting it on steroids in our own life. And we should know better. And, you know, there was a time when we did. That's the funny thing. I mentioned humanism on steroids because that's really where our culture is right now. But it wasn't always that way. Do you remember a group of folks called the Puritans? Now, the Puritans, the Puritans get a bad rap. Why? Because we think of them, oh, that's the Puritans, you know, these doctrinal, stuffy, stuffy guys in powdered wigs and so forth. We think of them in, in this kind of way as that these were all these stuffy, uptight individuals. Well, I don't know how stuffy or uptight they were, but I know... The Puritans looked at their lives, and they looked at their society, they looked at that which God had given them, and their desire was to conform their society to God's will rather than the other way around. To the Puritans, God made the road before our feet, and he also made the map, what you're supposed to do on it. We, we really have cast him out of all that. What we've done is made God a satellite, a distant satellite, in orbit of us, that every now and then, if we're really stretched, we can reach out to in terms of some help. The Puritans said, no, he's front and center. They're not the only group that's done that, but they are one in our own country's history that did so. A far wiser approach than demoting him to co-pilot. God's not the co-pilot in my life. I hope he's not the co-pilot in yours. God's in charge. Again, it's the job description. God is in charge. So stop putting him in the back seat or thinking that he's on the side of you. No. Look to him, turn to him, pray to him. Take the plans and the thoughts you have to the future and lay them before him. Say, God, what do you think? God, weigh in on this. God, here's where I'm at. This is what I'm thinking. You already know it, but I'm sharing with you my heart, and I need you to lead me. And guess what? He often will. Let me rephrase that. He always will. Now, sometimes, sometimes he will lead us in a way that's readily discernible. There's times when I've prayed about things Things have been concerning. Even pastoral ministry have prayed about something. There's times where a door is open in such a clear way, it's like you know, a light from heaven you know, beaming down, showing me what to do. Now that's helpful. And I trust and hope that some of you have had that experience where you're confused and you're lost and you're hurting and you're doubting. And in the midst of the clouds on your mind, you pray, you look to his word, and whether it's that day or next week or what have you, God chose you what you should do. Now that's good. And again, if you've been in the faith any period of time, you'll probably have experienced that. Well, here's the thing though. I've also experienced sort of the opposite. I've experienced, even in pastoral ministry, times when I have prayed fervently, consistently, regularly, that God would give me some clarity. I say, God, here's the issues. Here's what I'm seeing. Grant me some understanding what door to go through here, A, B, or C. Because they all go in very different directions. God, I need your help. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes God has not given me any clarity or understanding at all. But, but what I've had is just as helpful or perhaps even more. What has happened is this, that much like a child in a darkened room, without any clarity or understanding where they're going, might not know whether turn left, right, north, east, south, or west. But that child in that moment reaches their hands up and the father takes a hand and can lead them through the darkness. I don't necessarily get understanding for everything I pray to God to do. That would be presumptuous on my part to assume I get to understand everything that God's doing in my life. 
Newsflash, you don't get to understand everything God's doing in your life. But what you do get is the confidence that when you submit your hand to his, that he'll take it. And he'll lead you even if he doesn't explain it. There's some of us that have gone through hardships that this past year, the past few years, we don't know why it happened. Maybe there's losses we've encountered. We don't like it. We don't understand it. We have no more understanding now than we did when it happened. All right. But here's the thing. Your faith is not based or anchored upon your intellectual assent or understanding to everything God's doing in your life. That's not faith. Faith is even when things remain dark before your eyes, even when you don't get it, you still reach your hand up and God still lays hold of it. For many of us, that's the leading that God is doing in your life right now. Hopefully, he's leading you in clear and discernible ways through his word and through his spirit, and certain doors are being opened for you now in the future as you plan for the road ahead. Hopefully, that's happening. But in those moments where you don't know what God's doing, you don't even necessarily like what God's doing, remember, your call is not to like it, and your call is not to understand it. Your call is to have faith that he will lead you and guide you. Even if your eyes remain closed, even if you don't know what tomorrow will bring, you know that he's in charge and you're trusting him. And sometimes that's where my prayer life takes me to a point where I've unburdened myself, I've laid it all before him, and I don't necessarily know the answers, but I trust enough to know that he will yet still ordain the next steps in a way that brings him glory and is helpful to me and those near me. Planning for the future presupposes that you know all the contingencies. You do not. Two years ago, there wasn't a person in this room who knew what COVID was. You don't know the contingencies for what's going to happen next month, next year, but he does. So rather than presuppose that you can understand every bend in the road, rather lift your hand to him through prayer. Lift your hand to him and trust him that he will take it and he will lead you to a good and a beneficial outcome, one that glorifies himself and one that is helpful to you. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.